parallel to that so you understand the events of this week. Uh, On Saturday before the resurrection, uh, the week before the resurrection, Jesus was anointed by Mary. Um, And you remember that story. The next day is Sunday, which is what we celebrate today, known as Palm Sunday. Uh, It's called sometimes in the Bible the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem. Then on Monday, you have two events. You have Jesus as he goes into Jerusalem cursing a fig tree, and that becomes significant. And then you have him cleansing the temple. And you have that story that would have taken place on Monday. On Tuesday, um, Jesus confronts the Pharisees and has some very strict and harsh things to say to them. And then uh, you have what's known as the Mount Olivet Discourse. Wednesday is known as the silent day. There's nothing recorded of what Jesus does that particular day, so we don't know what he does. On Thursday, Jesus meets in the upper room with the disciples for uh, what we commonly refer to as the Last Supper. And the end of that ends with uh, a time of communion. And then they leave and they go to Gethsemane, and that's the story where Jesus is praying and the disciples Um, He is betrayed by Judas, and and they take Jesus uh, late that evening. Friday early morning is known uh, as there are actually a total of seven trials that Jesus goes through. And uh, eventually, they deliver him over to be crucified. And so the events of the crucifixion take place traditionally on Friday. Again, there's some people that argue for a Wednesday one, but believe whatever you want to believe, it still works out. Uh, And then Saturday would have been the Sabbath, and Jesus would have been in the tomb. And then on Sunday, we have the resurrection, which we celebrate a week from today. So those are the events and and, and how they play out. It's, It's important to understand that because what happens, what God has done is, and I think this is very important for the Passion Week for us to understand, that from the time that sin entered into, the, in, into man back in the garden, all of history has focused to this one event, to this one week, to this one moment in history. And when you study history and you study the Bible and you study everything, else, what you find is that, that all of history has kind of focused in onto this point. There's a, there's a road system in place. There is a, a stable political system in place. There is a common language in place. There are so many things historically that are now all in play for Jesus not only to come, and, and Galatians says in the fullness of time he came, when the time was right, Jesus comes on the scene. And it ends in uh, really the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then Fifty days after that, uh, Pentecost, and a number of people coming to Christ, and the gospel then taking off and spreading all over the world in a moment. And so, historically, this is a very, very important event. But that event, the, the, kind of the, the flagship moment for that whole series of events to start is what we know as Palm Sunday the triumphal entry. So we want to focus on that and talk about it this morning. Uh, it's, it's unique in that it's found in all four Gospels. Now, you need to understand that every Gospel presents a different side of Jesus Christ. Matthew presents Jesus as king. 
Mark presents him as servant. Uh, John presents him as the son of God. Luke presents him as the perfect son of man. So often whenever there's a, a story of Jesus told, it's put in that gospel because it helps that gospel writer emphasize that, that focus of Jesus. So whenever you find a, an event in the life of Christ that is in all four Gospels, it is significant. This event, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, is found in all four Gospels. And so, you know, we, we get a lot of insight from the different writers into what this event, what happened when this event took place. So this morning we're going to look at Luke's account. It's in Luke chapter 19. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. Uh, but Luke chapter 19, and here's where it says, uh, it says, uh, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Now, you are country people. You understand what this event would mean to find a donkey that no one has ever sat on tied up and now just think about this because what are we going to do with this donkey we're going to put a person on it surrounded by thousand upon thousand of screaming yelling people okay country people what are the odds that this is going to end well? Remember, this is a God thing. So it is going to play out like it's supposed to play out. But notice what happens. It says, um, which no one has ever said, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So let's understand what Jesus is asking of the disciples. We don't know which disciples. We think it's probably Peter and John. But... Two disciples go. They're supposed to go. They're supposed to find this animal. They're supposed to then just untie it, not even ask permission, just untie it and start taking it. And Jesus goes, oh, by the way, if they ask why, just tell them I need it. Now you're a disciple. What are you going to do? Because you need to understand this. In this culture, this animal is very expensive. In fact, we, when we read all the accounts, we get the idea that this animal is expensive enough that it had two owners. And you're supposed to walk up and just take it? And then if they ask, you go, oh, well, well he needs it. Um, there was a law at the time. There was an understanding at the time. Um, it was called, uh, let me get it right here. They called it uh, the custom of Agarera. And, and I think I'm pronouncing it right. Here's what it meant. It meant that a dignitary could come along and ask to use your stuff. So like if, the, if, if a congressman or a senator or something was in town and they walked up and they said, hey, look, I need to borrow your car. You go, okay, here. Well, that was kind of custom at the time. Um, so we don't understand why this guy would do it other than that's a God thing, but he does. Notice what happens. It goes on. It says this, uh, verse 32 so those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. So you have this situation where Jesus goes, guys, this is what I need you to do. And this is what they do. So 
they, they do this. They take this donkey now, and they're heading back towards uh, where Jesus is in Bethany, just outside of Bethpage, just outside of Jerusalem. It's about two miles between. And, and, and so they get there, and then notice what it goes on to say. Next. It says, uh, verse 35, uh, Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their robes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. So now they take this young donkey, and they take off. The, often in this culture, you got to understand, in, the, in, in this particular, and Laura could tell you this, um, because of the way the whole thing is all situated, at night it kind of gets cold, and during the day it's hot. Most of the time when they traveled, all they traveled with was what they had. So it was kind of like uh, last week when we were riding motorcycles. In Texas it was cold. It was 60 degrees where we were. Okay? And so, you know, so some of the guys that we were riding with, they were like Texas people. Okay? They came out looking like they were doing chores in 30 below winter. I mean, you know, they're all bundled up. And I'm like, how are you going to hold on to a motorcycle? You know, you got so much stuff on. You know, but what we did is we learned to layer our clothes, so, you know, so then we could layer it, and then as the day warmed up, and, you know, we could take off jackets and stuff like that, and so it was very similar to that culture. Because of the highs and lows, you would often sleep on the side of the road, or you'd sleep somewhere wrapped up in your coat. Um, that's why um, Amos talks about, you know, how can two be, uh, uh, how can one be warm alone? It was the idea that often they would share the clothes to stay warm and, and stuff like that, and so uh, in this culture, it wasn't uncommon to have layers, and so they went, okay, I'm going to take off my coat. I'm going to put on, again, think about this. You're country people. You know this. A donkey that's never been sat on. We're throwing stuff on top of it. And then we're going to take Jesus, and we're going to put him on top. And the donkey does what? Nothing. It's obedient. It just stands there. And notice what happens. It goes on. And it says, as he was going along the road, they were spreading their robes on the road. Um, they were spreading their robes on the road. And, and he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. There are two things that are happening at this point in history. Number one, you have the Passover, which is like a week away. So you have a lot of people coming into Jerusalem for Passover. And it's kind of a typical thing. Think about it for a minute. It, again, I'm going to try to do it in, in, in terms that we think. Super Bowl weekend. Let's say the Super Bowl was going to be in wherever, you know, Sioux City, Iowa. Okay? When do you try to get a room? And when do you get here to make sure that you have a room? Do you walk in, you know, the day of Super Bowl? No, the sooner you can book it, the sooner you can get it taken care of, the earlier you can get there and get your bearings and get acquainted with everything, the better off you are. No different. Passover was something that happened every year. People were used to the system. So the idea was if I can get there a little bit earlier, I can get stuff set up. I can have a place to eat. I can have a place to sleep. I can do all that kind of thing. So you have a large group that's gotten to Jerusalem or heading to Jerusalem. When they get to Jerusalem, here's what everybody starts hearing. Hey, did you hear what happened over in Bethany? No, what happened? Jesus raised a guy called Lazarus. He was dead. He was in the tomb. Three, he came out. Really? Now, I'm there a week early. What have I got to do? Let's go. Let's go. Because Bethany isn't that far. It's a couple miles. It's like from here to Climbing Hill. So you're like, I want to go check this out. I want to see it for myself. I want to see what my own eyes. So you got one group kind of heading up there to see the miracle. 
You've got other groups who are coming into Jerusalem, and Jesus is on the road that goes right into that way. And then, so think about it for a minute. These people are going up to see Jesus, and they hear Jesus is coming. So people start taking off their coats, laying it on like, kind of like a red carpet thing. And by the way, this was not uncommon when Rome would come back from a victory. Uh, they, would, they would have these kinds of celebrations. Often the, 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 the king or whoever would come riding in on a, on a horse. Uh, a horse was an animal of war. A donkey was known as an animal of peace. They would come riding in, and so they would throw stuff down. They would often have flags. If you've ever seen any of the movies where they're doing this, they're waving the flags to, to get attention. They would often cut down the palm fronds, which are everywhere over there um, at this point in history. They would cut those down, and they would wave those to get attention. Uh, the palm fronds were often used in times of victory for celebration. They were also used in times of mourning. They were put on top of graves as a symbol of uh, a life to come for people. So they start cutting these things down, and they wave them, and then the disciples start, actually it's a quote from from Psalm 118, Hosanna, and they start crying out, which has the idea of, Lord, save us. Um, And then notice what happens. It says, you know, they cried with a loud voice for the miracles they had seen. Again, a man had just come out of the, the grave. So, you know, Jesus had brought him back to life. And blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven going on um so you got all these people shouting now think about this for a minute okay that's what's going on jesus starts coming down into town there's all this craziness everybody's shouting everybody's praising the name of jesus everybody's saying save us save us save us save us because really they wanted a political savior they were tired of rome they didn't like the oppression of rome they wanted someone to come in and rule them who was not rome and they hear all these things about jesus now here's the thing if you're a pharisee What's the biggest day of your year? Passover. I mean, Passover, all the males have to come for Passover. That's like the big church boom. And and, and so all the worship. So who's the center of attention at Passover? The Pharisees. The religious leaders. All of the people that have to do with religion and the Jewish system and all of that. This is their day. And who's getting the attention? Jesus. Who's the guy that's been a thorn in their side for three years? Jesus. Who's the one that everybody's talking about now? Jesus. Who's the one that's getting the red carpet treatment? Jesus. And they don't like it. They don't like it at all. And you think that when he goes in the next day, by the way, he goes in first, checks out the scene. The next day he goes in and overturns the tables and says, you're not going to turn my father's house into a house of, about money. You're not going to be robbing these people. And that was a whole other deal. You think that just earned him brownie points with these guys? Because see, they, they, for them, this was a big money day. And they were robbing people blind. And the way the system was set up then, as you need to understand, you would have to bring an acceptable offering. So, you know, again, here was the system. What happened is I've raised my, I've raised my, my lamb, and I've made sure that it's spotless and everything else, and I've made my journey, and I bring it to the priest for Passover, and the priest looks at it and goes, no, that's not acceptable. And I go, what am I going to do? Well, we have priest-approved sheep right over there. 
And you can go buy one of those for us. Um, okay, well, okay, so you go up then with your American money, and they go, oh, no, 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 we don't take American money here at the temple. We only take temple money. Well, how do I get temple money? Oh, the exchange place is right over there. And you go over and you take your American money, and they go, well, here's the exchange rate this week. Well, wait a minute. That means I've got to pay even more. Yeah, exactly right, but, you know, it is what it is. And that's what they were doing. And Jesus walked in and saw that mass, and he was anything but happy with that. Because he said, that's not what church is about. That's not what this thing's all about. And so that's, that's kind of the system that was happening there. So when Jesus goes in and overturned, let me tell you something. He really got on their bad side. If he wasn't on their bad side on Sunday, by Monday night, he was, I mean, their, their object was, we've got to get rid of this guy. This guy is a problem. And people are listening to him and not us. So notice what happened. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Again, they were doing anything they could to catch him. So they said, look, get him to shut up. I don't need to be singing all that stuff to you. I don't need to be doing all of that. Notice what Jesus said. <clears throat> I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. He said, you don't understand. And, and by the way, you'll understand this now. Stones crying out in, in, in Israel? I mean, there's stones everywhere in Israel. You wonder why, if you ever look at the news, you see them picking up rocks and throwing them at people? Because you've got to understand, you know how far you are from a rock? Six inches? Maybe? They're everywhere. And so what happens is, <laughs> he says, look, I'm here to tell you. I, I think he's talking about the stones of the temple. But he says, look, I'm here to tell you. If they shut up the stone, this, all of history is focused on what's happening right here, right now. Everything is zeroed into this moment. And then notice what happened. <clears throat> he says, I tell you, the stones would, would cry out. Verse uh, 41. Uh, as he approached and he saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children within it, you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in you because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. What Jesus is saying here is, it, what, first of all, what happens is, as he's looking, and again, you have to understand, if you, if you understand the topography of the land, as, as you come down um, from the Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet, and you come down into Jerusalem, there's a, the, the, it, it kind of goes like this, and then it kind of levels out. And, and there's a point up there where actually you look out and you can see over top of the city. And you can see the valley. And you can see the Hinnon Valley, and you can see how it all comes together because it kind of comes to a point. And you're standing up there looking out over all of it. Um, when we were in, uh, down in Texas last week, we got to go to, uh, was it like the highest point in Texas, I think, the observatory? There's an observatory, and we were standing up there. And when you look out, you can just see for miles out there. <clears throat> at Olivet, as Jesus was coming down, there was a point at which he could sit there, and he could see the temple, and he could watch all the people on all the roads coming in, and he could see all this stuff. The, disciples are, or the Pharisees are telling him to be quiet. Jesus is standing there looking at all this, and he weeps. This is a different word, by the way, than the weep at Lazarus' tomb that had happened like two weeks before. 
I think it's significant. You find two events in which Jesus weeps. All of them happening within, the la within two weeks. The thing with Lazarus and now here. Because I think what's happening is as Jesus is coming to the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus is understanding the impact of what he's about ready to do. And it's not a, he, I don't think he weeps because he's going to the cross. I think he stands there and weeps because he realizes, I spent 33 years trying to help them to understand, and they don't get it. I'm here. I'm the answer. I'm their hope. I'm their future. And they still don't get it. And I think he stands there weeping over the fact that they have no idea what's around the corner. And if they could just understand who I am and what I'm about, but they missed it. They missed it. And it breaks his heart. And that's how we end the story of, the, of Palm Sunday as we know it. Um, a couple of takeaways, a couple of things that I think are maybe important for us to think about as we, as we contemplate what it means to us. One of the things that I think is unique in this story is the fact that you see a tremendous amount of obedience in this story. You see the obedience of the disciples going to get the donkey. You see the obedience of the donkey. You see the obedience of, of the owner. And, and you need to understand how significant that was. These, these, these animals were expensive. A modern-day parallel would be this. Let's say you've saved up, and you, 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 this week you bought a brand-new car. <clears throat> and you've got your car, and you can't wait to bring it to church and, and tell everybody how blessed you are. Okay? Uh, so you bring your car in. You've got your brand-new car. You pull into the lot. And when you pull in the lot, there's something unusual. I'm standing out in the parking lot. And you go, let me show you what the Lord gave me. You know, it's all paid for. It's all cash. It's all brand new. And, and it's, got look, it's got less than like, you know, 15 miles on it. Um, I don't know how you could do that here. But it's got less than 100 miles on it. Uh, you know, 50, we all come at least that far to church, most of us. So, well, Hammonds. But, um, uh, but I mean, you know, I, I mean, you, know you, you know what I'm talking about. So you've got a brand new car there. And, I, and, and before you get out, I say, hey, uh, I've got to run to Omaha. I need your car. When you bring it back, don't know. Now, how Christian are you? <laughs> At that point, don't you have a lot of questions? Don't you have a lot of things like, uh, are you going to park it like in the in the covered parking area? Uh, are you going to, you know, do you think I get it back like in a week or maybe two weeks or, or, or like in a couple of days? Can I come down and get it? you got a lot of questions, right? No, not here. They walk up and says, the Lord needs it. And the guy goes, okay, here are the keys. Incredible amount of obedience, incredible amount of following God. And, and like I say, this is a God thing to take a new donkey nobody's ever sat on, put coats upon it, put Jesus on it put it in all that kind of activity? I mean, you know, I don't think that there's a lot of well-trained, I don't know anything about donkeys, but I don't think there's a lot of well-trained donkeys that can handle that kind of an environment. And yet, it's a God thing. And Jesus comes in, and by the way, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah. It, it was predicted that it was going to happen this way. It was all, all orchestrated by God. 
And I think it's important for us to understand that what it, but what it took on the part of those disciples was obedient. And think about it for a minute. If you're a disciple, don't you have a couple of questions? I mean, you know, really, Jesus? And, are, and when you're going there, are, 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 what are you talking about? What are you thinking about? You know, you think he's lost it? I mean, you know, this is a little crazy, don't you think? This is a little odd. I mean, we're going to go up and take a guy's donkey. And we're just supposed to untie it and walk away. And, and if he asks us about it, all we're supposed to do is just say, Jesus needs it? Really? Like, that's going to be a satisfactory answer? But what do they do? They don't question it. They simply go and are obedient. And I think there's a phenomenal lesson for us. Because let me tell you something. Sometimes some of the stuff God asks of us doesn't make a lot of sense to us. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't need to make sense to us. We just need to be obedient. And if some of you, you're struggling because you know what? God's spoken to you about something. You know what it is. You know what you need to do. You know what you need to change. You know what step you need to make. But you are doing everything but being obedient. And I think one of the things that you see in this passage is there's an incredible amount of obedience in this, in this event. And it's important for us to understand how necessary. Can you imagine if the disciples would have looked at him and gone, eh, sorry, that's too much, I'm not doing that. How does the story turn out then? How does the story turn out if the owner is not willing to let go? You know, because it wasn't a backup plan. This was simply a, is God in it? Okay, then we go forward. And we be obedient. And I, and I think that's an important lesson for us. I think the second thing is, this thing doesn't work out like everybody thought. You see, this is on Sunday morning, or this is on Sunday that this happens. By Friday, there's a crowd that is crying, crucify him. On Sunday, they're praising him as a king. But five days later, and I don't think it's the same crowd, but it may have been some of the same crowd, they're crying crucify. Now, think about yourself for a moment. Let's say you're one of the ones cutting down palm fronds and doing the waving or taking your coat off and throwing it and saying, save us, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. And then five days later... You're walking into Jerusalem, outside Jerusalem, you see that same king hanging with a sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. Now what's going through your head? I mean, that kind of wasn't what you had in mind when you were standing there on Sunday, was it? Because you see, what happens in this story, and, and I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus stops and weeps, because they don't get it. This thing doesn't, play out like they think it's going to play out i mean even his own disciples don't know what to do they're taken back by this and yet he's already told them what's going to happen and i think there's a great lesson in here is that you know things don't work out the way you and i think they should work out these guys who are standing there yelling hosanna king save us because see here's the thing in their mind they had a way that this was supposed to work out see they were under the oppression of rome so they wanted a savior from rome they were looking for somebody who would, who would restore Jerusalem to its rightful place, who would kick out Rome, who would be their political savior, who would change their country, who would turn everything around back to the way it was. That's what they were looking for. 
And that's what they were anticipating. And yet, they didn't see that this wasn't a political thing, this was a spiritual thing. And they missed that completely. And so their idea is, well, he's going to deliver us from Rome. And then, when Rome crucifies him, then they're sitting there going, oh, it's all over now. Rome is more powerful. Rome is, you know, in charge. This is going to keep going on and on and on again. There's no hope for us now. Because, see, they were looking for something different. Look, I can't tell you the number of times I have watched Christians that think things ought to work out a certain way. And they bail on God when it doesn't work out the way they think it ought to work out. They're no different from some of the people on Palm Sunday thousands of years ago. When it doesn't work out the way they thought it should work out, then they bail. And I think if we're not careful, we fall into that trap very, very easily. Because we start praying about something and we get in our head on how we think it all work out, what God ought to do and how God ought to do it and where God ought to do it and when God ought to do it. And, and we have it all figured out. And then it doesn't play out that way for us. Then we're like, oh, God doesn't care. About a year ago, I, I ran into this and, and, and it has literally changed 100 degrees in my life, 180 degrees in my life. I read something about... Um, First world problems, that was the term that I heard. First world problems. In other words, in third world countries, the problems are very, very basic. Food, shelter, clothing. They get up every day and they're concerned about food, shelter, clothing. Some, not even clothing sometimes, just food and shelter. That's their whole world. When they get up every morning, it's about food and shelter. We call those third world countries. And, and, and in a lot of those countries, fresh drinking water. We have first world problems. Do you know how long I had to wait in the doctor's office? Do you know I can't get an appointment for like three weeks? Did, you cannot believe what they are charging me for parking. We have so many first world problems. So here's what I started doing. I started stepping back and looking at my life and putting my problems in a category of first, second, or third world problems. And you know what I realized? I don't have any problems. Because all of the problems that I've had within the last year have been first world problems. First world problems. They've all been little things like, Oh, I can't believe I've got to take my car into the mechanic again. Not, how am I going to get clean drinking water? Not, where am I going to sleep tonight? Not, you know, uh, they're all first world problems. Everything I struggled with this year was a first world problem. And it became very difficult for me to not start thanking God that I had first world problems instead of complaining about my first world problems. Why? Because I started to realize that God had a plan, and God has a plan. And one of God's plans for me was to get, put me in a place where all of my problems were first world problems. And I took a whole different perspective on stuff that comes into my life now. Now, the flip side of that is, I don't have a lot of patience for your first world problems. 
That's the flip side of it. And so I'm saying, okay, now, God, there's a balance here for me. But I think so many times what's happened for us is we get it that it's got to go a certain way. And that certain way is a first world problem way. And we really need to step back as believers, as children of God, and be grateful that you and I live in the top 1% of the world. I'm not saying our problems aren't real, but I'm saying, you know what? I think it's pretty selfish when we start complaining about the level of our first world problems. And I wonder sometimes what that does to a God in heaven who has been so gracious and so good and so kind and so overwhelming to us. Because I know how I feel about it when I have been very generous with my kids and all they want is more. I know what my reaction is. And I'm just glad that God is God and he doesn't react like I do. Because, you know, he doesn't. He's incredibly good to us. And whatever you've got going on in your life, I understand it may not be working out the way you think it ought to work out, but be careful here. Be really, really careful here. Because what happens with all these, with, with all these people, and the disciples and everybody else is, this week is not going to go like they thought it was going to go. And it really impacts what they do at the end of that week. Because the disciples basically hightail it out of there. They don't know what to do. And Jesus already told them what was going to happen. He's already told them what to do. But again, it didn't work the way they thought it would. And for some of you who life has not worked out the way you think it should, I'm sorry. But if you haven't figured it out yet, you're not in control. Your ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not your ways. But I can tell you this. You have a loving Father who has allowed you to live at a level that 99% of the world doesn't get to live at. And I can tell you that you have a Father, a loving God, who gave His life for you. Because you are valuable to him and you are important to him and he has blessed you in incredible, incredible, incredible ways. Maybe you just need to take a step back and see it from a different perspective. Because I know it changed the way I look at a lot of stuff. And I realized that, you know what? I'm grateful to have the problems that I have. Because most 99% of the world would trade places with me like that. It changed the way. So so when things happen and they don't happen the way I think they should happen, I kind of step back and go, God, you know what? You, You do know what's best. I don't. You do know what's around the corner. I don't. And I want to challenge you with that. And then the last thing is this. You need to realize that God is not going to force himself on you. Jesus stops at the end of this day. And it breaks his heart because people aren't choosing him. He's their hope. He's their future. He's their peace. He's going to meet every need they've got, but they don't see it. And I'm here to try to beg you, plead with you, do whatever I can, but I cannot choose for you. But you need to know this season is about a God who gave his life for you. 
who loves you enough that I don't care what you have done, he is willing to wipe it all clean, to give you a fresh start, to take care of your sin once and forever. That's what the cross is about. And all it takes is for you to realize that you can't save yourself and that you need a Savior. And to ask Him to come into your life, to forgive your sin, to be your Lord and Savior, to make your life about Him, not about you. And that simple choice, that simple decision is why He came. It's what this season is all about. And believe it or not, God in heaven is brokenhearted because you will not choose him. But a long time ago, he made the decision that you were worth it. And if you know the events of this week, many of you have seen it in in movies and depicted on screens. But I'm here to tell you, when you read an actual account of what took place, There is no film that you have ever seen. There is nothing that you have ever experienced that can betray how horrible it was. The reality of it is, if we did an accurate depiction of the crucifixion, it would not allow it to be shown anywhere. But you know what? It wasn't the physical part of it. We're going to talk about this next week. It wasn't the physical part of it, the cross, that was the worst. It was he took your sin and my sin upon him. But it breaks his heart when you continue day after day, week after week, month after month, to reject him. And he stood at the end of this day, thousands of years ago, weeping because they didn't get it. And that hasn't changed if you don't accept him. He wants nothing more. That's the reason this, this, this event in history exists. So I end this morning by saying that. God will not force himself upon you. But it breaks his heart when people don't realize what he's offering them. He did not do things the way they thought it should be done. And they missed him completely. They were more concerned with their agenda than listening and following Christ. Don't make the same mistake. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, we get so wrapped up in our world, and we get so wrapped up in our stuff, and we get so wrapped up in all of the things that happen to us. And Lord, so often we miss the things that have been given to us and how good you have been to us. So Lord, this morning I pray that each one of us would just take a, kind of take a step back and realize that, Lord, you are at work. That, Lord, you do love us. That, Lord, you offer salvation to every single one of us. And, Lord, if there are folks in here who have continually, day after day, said no to you, Lord, I, I pray that this week, that today, you would work in their heart as only you can and they come to understand that, Lord, you are the only hope they have. And Lord, for those of us who have put our faith and trust in you, Lord, sometimes we just become whiners. And Lord, we miss what we've been given and we just want more and more and more and more and more and more. 
And Lord, I just pray that as we look at our situations and circumstances and stuff we struggle with, that Lord, we would realize how blessed we are to even be able to have those kinds of struggles. So Lord, use us this week. Help us to realize that you're, you're not doing things the way we think they ought to be done, but that, Lord, you are in control. And help us to be, be obedient to do what we need to do to honor and please and walk faithful to your word. And when it's all said and done, Lord, we look forward to the day that we gather around your throne together and rejoice over the way, Lord, that you have worked and used us in our lives. These things we ask in your name.